Before we begin, a brief message from this episode's sponsor, Contract Diagnostics. They are a firm that is 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers. They've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risk they're taking for their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours. They make it easy for you. All packages are flat priced, so you know what you will pay up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. All right. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Medical Liability Minute. We actually speak more than a minute. We're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thank you. Nice to be with you. So what we're trying to do is pull out news blurbs um, in terms of how various healthcare providers were caught in the crosshairs. What are some lessons learned from them? And here's one that caught my attention. And let me just go through some of the details. We'll use that as a springboard for a conversation. So this came out of Boston. This is a note from the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office. The, for immediate release this year, Lexington doctor, that's Lexington, uh, Massachusetts, and office manager indicted in international money laundering scheme involving non-approved drugs. So they were indicted in international money laundering scheme involving non-approved drugs. You know, when I when I see that headline, I start thinking, well, maybe this is Pablo Escobar, perhaps. What do you yes. think? It, it, it sounds very exotic, doesn't it? Involving tunnels and all these kind of things that you're thinking El Chapo at the other end. Who knows? Uh, but no, not really, right? Not really. So here's there are two doctors, Raheem Shafa, age 62, and Atina Shafa. I'm guessing they're husband and wife, but I'm not sure. Um, also age 62. This is on the tail end of their career, so it's not the type of thing you want to um, be exposed to at the tail end of your career. They're each indicted on one count of international money laundering. Uh, conspiracy, as well as defrauding the United States, uh, blah, blah, blah. So let's let's just talk about what the allegation was. Quote, in order to make money, the defendants allegedly, allegedly circumvented mandatory FDA drug inspections and took advantage of vulnerable patients who sought to escape addiction through legitimate treatment, distributing illegally imported prescription drugs of unknown origin and ingredients instead of FDA-approved drugs places the U.S. public health at risk. And again, I'm quoting from the, um, from the federal authorities. Um, according to the indictment, Shafa was a psychiatrist who owned and operated an entity called Novel Psychopharmacology. And um, Tina Shafa was the office manager from 2008 to 2018, so that would be a decade. The couple engaged in an international money laundering scheme to purchase naltrexone pellet implants, disulfram pellet implants, and disulfram injections from Hong Kong. So disulfram is used to treat alcohol dependence, naltrexone is used to treat 
alcohol and opioid dependence. Um, disulfiram and naltrexone are approved by the FDA in certain forms. However, the forms of the drugs that the couple purchased are not FDA approved. Um, so it's further alleged that they falsified shipping documents. Again, these came in from Hong Kong to make the packages containing the drugs uh, shipped from overseas into Massachusetts. Massachusetts look like lawful imports. For example, and again, I'm quoting, packages containing naltrexone pellet implants were falsely declared as plastic beads and plastic tubes in shipping uh, documents. So, charges of money laundering. Lost in translation, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's probably true. That's what that is. There are plastic beads and plastic tubes. <laughs> there is an element of truth there. I wouldn't say it's false. I just wouldn't say it's true. Depends what the meaning of the word is. Is So what, um, what are the potential penalties? And we'll go through this. The charges of money laundering and money laundering conspiracy provide for a sentence of up to 20 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of a quarter of a million dollars. Now, again, remember, these are people that have been engaged in this activity for a decade. They're each age 62 years old. You can do the math, you know, 20 years in federal prison. Not that they would necessarily serve that long, but you're talking about uh, some real headaches right here. And of course, the the press release contains the, the caveat the details contained in the charging document or allegations. The defendants are presumed innocent unless until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in the court of law. I'm sure this would have no impact on their practice whatsoever, that they can continue <laughs> practicing in the interim without any headaches. Uh, if you believe that, I've got some other stories. Anyway, let's let's dive into some of the issues right here. Wait, wait I mean, can, can we first just acknowledge the name of their practice? Novel Psychopharmacology. Right. Does that not, just given the allegations, just throw a big red flag when you get no further than just the, how they name their practice? This is going to be an issue, right? Because throughout the attorney general's office, they just refer to the organization or the practice as novel. Um, so, Mike, yeah, I think it's illegal or not, but it, it is unfortunate choice of names for them. I think where you're heading uh, with that is that novel may be a work of fiction. Is that where your head's at? Yes, um, or or certainly a type of uh, a type of pharmaceutical product that is uh, not standard. It is it is not its use is novel in the uh, in the U.S., which is not something that the FDA wants to see. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. When you have a uh, biotechnology company, for example, trying to bring a new product to market. In their material, they describe we're trying to advance um, uh, medication for a, a novel indication or a novel receptor, uh, but those are all within the confines of a formal uh, regulatory process. Not here, where you're you're a practitioner hoping to use some type of um, compounds to make your patients better, but the underlying assumption is that either you are using an FDA-approved substance or it's being delivered, for example, by a compounding pharmacy, which gives you a little bit more latitude, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But let's just talk about, very briefly, what are the FDA requirements? I mean, everybody here, I think, listening knows that the FDA is charged with approving medications that are considered safe and efficacious. And 
when they approve something, it usually defines what the sponsoring drug company, pharmaceutical company is trying to do. So the pharmaceutical company puts together a package, they submit it to the FDA after it's been researched and you have phase one, phase two, and phase three trials working to demonstrate to the FDA that the medication is safe and efficacious for its intended use. And they get a marketing label, meaning that it's useful for whatever the indication is, perhaps Parkinson's, perhaps schizophrenia, uh, perhaps in this case, um, uh, substance abuse. But by and large, who's getting the approval? It's the entity that is researching and or manufacturing, distributing the drug. They're the ones that get the, the license, if you will, to distribute their, their compound to practitioners. Now, once, you, once it's distributed, I'm, I'm sorry, once it's approved as being safe and efficacious, doctors are able to prescribe it as they see fit. So there's this um, myth that you can't prescribe something off-label. But the truth is, the majority of medications are prescribed off-label. The label is describes the relationship between the manufacturer and the federal regulatory body. Doctors are beholden to their own regulatory bodies, namely the state medical licensing board, and they have their own interest, but as long as a drug has been approved as being safe and efficacious for some indication, as long as there's reasonable belief, perhaps in the literature, perhaps in how your peers are practicing, um, you are free as a doctor to prescribe things off-label, and I actually call it silent label. I don't call it off-label because off-label sounds so horrible and so bad, but it, it's really silent label. And the FDA, for the most part, does not regulate, for the most part, does not regulate the practice of medicine. But here you can see that was not the case, correct? That, that's exactly right. You're drawing a great distinction, right? Because the FDA is interacting with the, the producer, the, the pharma company that's coming out. It's approving it for a specific use. That pharma company cannot then market their product for uses for which it was not approved. But physicians are in a different category. They may use the product, the pharmaceutical product, for purposes not, not approved. It's been approved for general use and for specific things. They can use it, as you say, silent label, but the pharma company cannot market it for reasons um, that has not gone through the approval process. That distinction that you drew shows really where the FDA is uh, is on things. It's it's regulating the, the the pharma company, and oftentimes we're seeing the the boards of medicine entering in or uh, or, or others on um, overseeing the physicians. So let's give an example. Um, I think uh, a number of pharmaceutical companies have received approval for use of I'll just say an antibiotic for use in adults. I I don't want to pull one by name, but let's just just work with that. Um, what does that mean? It means that it probably has not been approved by the FDA for use in either infants or those under the age of 18. So the pharmaceutical company can't really market to pediatricians, for example, but once it's on the market and once Walgreens has been stocked up, if a doctor believes reasonably that the medication may be useful with a particular dosage, to a pediatric population and either the literature supports it or the community 
the, the other practitioners in the community are prescribing as such, then they are free to prescribe that medication to children. The FDA can say nothing about it. Now, there are times the FDA can and tries to weigh in, but this would not be one of them. The goal here is just to approve the drug as being safe and, safe and efficacious for a marketed indication, and the doctor is really not part of that conversation. That, that, that's exactly, exactly right. But certainly the FDA is not without authority over, over practitioners, right? So Case in point. Exactly. And there, there are other cases that are less egregious than this one, right? Here, here we've got somebody who's, who's falsifying documents to get products in that were um, not, not, not approved. What if we're talking about a pharmaceutical product which has been approved, but is outside of the country, and you, you, you want to bring it in and use it because you can pick this product up uh, for significantly less uh, dollars if you cross the border and go into Mexico or, or, or Canada, pick it up, bring, bring a supply back, and then prescribe it uh, for its intended use, and it is a product that is approved. Um, can you do that? And the answer is absolutely no. Um, the FDA is going to say that we have rules on how pharmaceutical products are, are handled and stored, shipped, and if you're doing it outside, we can't guarantee that that's, uh, that's appropriate and you can't bypass our system to try to bring things in. So it could be, as an example, it could be that Pfizer has asked for a particular drug to be approved in the United States. Let's, let's just call it drug X and let's say it has been approved. Uh, in the United States. And let's say they also have, um, Pfizer has also had that same drug, drug A, approved in Slovenia. And you can get it shipped to you for a tenth of the cost as purchasing in the US. But it's, that drug is manufactured in a different place and has a different regulatory pathway than that which has been manufactured in the US. So you really need to know where the source of your medication is coming from, meaning that if you're buying through approved vendors, approved intermediaries, you've almost outsourced the problem to them. I mean, they don't wanna get into regulatory problems, but by dealing with trusted vendors, you would know that the device or the medication that you're using is has been granted appropriate regulatory approval. You, you look at this case right right here, and it may very well, I mean, it looks like, I mean, these are, these are medications that have been used in the United States in the past. I'm looking at naltrexone, I'm looking at uh, disulfiram. These have been in the United States for, for many years, perhaps decades, uh, but the way that they were concocted, the way that they were formulated, uh, as I read this is, it was not approved for use in the United States. Doesn't mean that at some point there won't be a use for it, but in this particular capacity, there's a problem. Now, this gets into the question of compounding pharmacies because compounding pharmacies are often tasked with taking um, a medication that has been approved for use and reformulating it in a custom way for an individual. Custom, uh, to be reformulated in a custom way for an individual. So, for example, let's say that you've got a, um, I don't know, um, a powdered medication and you're just trying to make it palatable 
for a child. So you put it in solution uh, and then add grape flavor to it. Um, if, if you were to sell that in a mass market, you couldn't say that, hey, look, it's just an approved drug. I've just you know, turned it into a grape flavored approved drug. You would have a problem. But compounding pharmacies can do that if they have a prescription for an individual. But the key thing is that the compounding pharmacy needs to be doing it not on a mass scale, but for you know one individual based on a single prescription. In a sense, they're almost like a doctor's office um, providing this type of service. Here, you can see that they were doing this giant purchase. There was no prescription. These medications were not put together by a compounding pharmacy. They were put together by a foreign entity. So there was no chain of custody related to any type of quality compliance. And a couple apparent must have known this because when the package came in from overseas, instead of saying, hey, look, these are naltrexone pellet implants, they called them plastic beads and plastic tubes. It's pretty hard to weather that storm. Um, particularly, I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm, I'm guessing there were significant financial benefits to doing it that way. I would assume that you're right. And, and and look, isn't the first clue that we may have a problem when the uh, the substance you want is not readily available within the country, right? I mean, it, it, you typically when you are using something that's FDA approved, you're going to have a source within the United States to get it. Um, so that may have been their, their first uh, clue. But my guess is that they knew and, and by very design of their practice name, they were shooting for things that were not readily available other places. Mike, don't you think that they could have gotten these compounds for their clients from a compounding pharmacy? Those would be naltrexone sourced in the United States, gone to the, it would go to the compounding pharmacy and the compounding pharmacy would make some modest changes to it for a single individual based on a single prescription. Had they done that, do you think they'd be running into this, this criminal no, I, I think Challenge. you raise a great. I think you raise a great point. I think that they very well could have. I I can't guarantee it, but I think that uh, compounding pharmacy may have given them the latitude to to prescribe what they wanted in the, in the form that they wanted, um, but it certainly would not have put the profit in their pocket. And so one wonders if this was not only about the actual prescription or or what they wanted to uh, to prescribe, but also about um, the profit associated with it. So I'm I'm speculating there and, and I may be doing that in an unfair way, but I think that there's a reason why they didn't go through a compounding pharmacy. And the compounding pharmacy market has changed over the past several years. They were mostly unregulated for quite a long time. And the presumption was that they were mom and pop operations that could provide services that were other otherwise not being provided to small practices performing a very valuable uh, valuable and needed service. But if we go back to um, a compounding pharmacy in the news, it was, I think it was epidural steroid injections that were mass produced uh, at a compounding pharmacy. Um, I wanna say in Massachusetts, but I can't remember yes. correctly, but there was a great deal of contamination associated with these lots where patients were being injected. Um, either with uh, steroids in the epidural area and maybe even in the spinal sac where patients were getting right. epidural abscesses, osteomyelitis, meningitis, et cetera. A number of people died. This turned into criminal complaints against the owners of the uh, 
compounding pharmacy for gross and, and criminal negligence, also lawsuits, and doctors got caught in the crosshairs because people were saying, why, why are you buying these types of compounds from you know, an unknown entity where you can't really check the quality of their goods? They're, I don't know what type of inspections they had, but whatever inspections were available, either they failed or they ran into problems. And the doctors, not being aware of it, got caught in the crosshairs. And so what happened after that? There was litigation and new regulatory uh, challenges so that if you're a compounding pharmacy, you can't be a giant commercial distribution entity. There's got to be one prescription for each patient, and it needs to be customized for that individual patient. I don't know that much has changed in the compounding pharmacy world, but I do know there was an attempt to rein it in. So if the compounding pharmacy was acting like a pharmaceutical corporation, that they needed to make sure their their compounds were submitted to the Food and Drug, uh, Food and Drug Administration for regulatory approval. This is an area of, of scrutiny by the Office of Inspector General, OIG, has taken real interest in compounding uh, pharmacies and those that submit uh, prescriptions uh, to them in large quantity. Because the reimbursement for compounding medication is significantly higher than just the normal version of the medication that you would write a script to and have filled it at Walgreens, right? So anytime there's this excess amount of money, we want to have some scrutiny to make sure that these prescriptions are really necessary. And I've seen any number of cases come be investigated and charges filed where a medical practice was in, for lack of a better term, cahoots with a compounding pharmacy, right? And they'll, we'll send you these scripts, you compound it and you give us some degree of a kickback and we all make more money than if we just uh, wrote things that were generally available. Um, and there've been a number of those. So this is an area of scrutiny by the OIG. And if you're routinely writing prescriptions that need compounding, you just wanna make sure that you can justify it and have a, a reasonable uh, basis for it. And you certainly should not be taking um, money back off of each uh, script that you write to the compounding uh, pharmacy. So Mike, let me let me close with a question here. I'm not sure I know, I think I know what the answer is, but I'm not 100% sure. Let's say, I mean, I know that patients can go overseas and bring back medication for their own personal use. So if, for example, you're taking an expensive hypertensive medication, and you just want to go across the border and pay cash and you have a prescription to do it and someone in Canada will, will fill it for you. My understanding is you can get it filled and bring back enough for your personal use as a patient. You can't distribute it, you can't sell it, but you can you can basically use it on your own. What happens if a doctor has a relationship with an implant manufacturer, a medical device manufacturer outside of the United States? And let's assume they they make the con. We've got two two scenarios. There is no comparable medical device in the United States. That's example one. And then um, the flip side, meaning that um, it is available in the United States. But let's say the doctor sends the patient to Mexico or Canada and says, "You can pick it up here. Here's a prescription, and bring it back. You'll save quite a bit of money, and I'll implant this into your body." 
are there rules or regulation? I mean, certainly you're taking a risk because you've lost the chain of custody. If the patient gets nothing more than an infection, I think it'd be very hard to defend. But let's assume for the moment that you can sterilize and you feel pretty comfortable from that standpoint. Let's say you still feel comfortable with the quality control. It's just that it's not manufactured in the United States. What advice would you give to that doctor that sees a business opportunity to double down on profits here? Um, don't do it would be my advice. I think that you're subjecting yourself to all kinds of potential uh, liability, even potentially uh, a criminal if you're doing this on a, uh, a basis where you're uh, profiting. Because look, what you're doing is trying to bypass the U.S. system, and you're you're in a essentially a criminal conspiracy, in my opinion. You've got a couple of people, yourself and your patient, trying to think, how can we bypass the laws of this country uh, for our mutual profit? That's going to get you in trouble. Maybe not on the first one, maybe not uh, maybe not down the road, but you are definitely taking a chance and it is it is not worth it and you can have real problems. Now, let's assume the device is not manufactured in the United States at all and you as a patient are desperate to receive some type of benefit that you otherwise cannot get, but you don't want to go overseas to have that in device implanted. You want it implanted in the United States. Um, I assume the advice would be the same. You, you essentially would be performing a research project, if you will, without any of the regulatory um, guidelines well, being that's followed. That's right. That's right, and there are methods by which they're they're difficult, but there are methods by which you can apply to the FDA to see if you can have permission to conduct a limited uh, study. Now, this might be overly expensive and not not feasible, but there is a mechanism that addresses this. So the idea that you bypass that mechanism is going to put you into into problems. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I don't know how this will play out, but I would suspect that because they labeled their naltrexone pellet implants as plastic beads and plastic tubes, that will be exhibit A to the jury. And I'm going to guess that this couple will probably try and please something down before um, taking it to the mat in court. And one of the challenges you have with federal courts is that there are mandatory minimum penalties um, for for a host of offenses and here the the uh, sentence could be up to 20 years in prison and these are people who are each 62 years old you think you think they'll try and play long, it down? long stint I, I don't know what they'll do but in in federal uh, system unlike in many states in in my state you're convicted of something you have to serve six years you can essentially do three years and be be released. The percentage at the federal level is 80%. So if you're if you're hit with uh, 20 years, that means you're you're locked up uh, no matter what you do for 16 of the 20. So um, it it makes it all the more frightening. I can only imagine when they created the novel psychopharmacology, they were thinking that they would be saving a few bucks, make make a little bit, they'd save a few bucks, they'd make a little bit more in the way of profit and continue with their day job. I don't think that they would be the subject of our conversation today. Fine line when you're trying to be edgy, isn't it? Yes, it is. On that note, stay safe and we'll catch up with everyone soon. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. 
and specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interest and protect the assets that you covet most, namely your time and your family. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.